Welcome to More Than One Thing with Athena Calderon, the podcast focused on non-traditional career paths, creative endeavors, and the ever-evasive multi-hyphenate. This is a podcast about taking the road less traveled to find your passion and purpose while navigating the hurdles and hoops we all jump through on this personal and creative journey. I'm your host, Athena Calderon, author, interior designer, cook, recipe developer, entertaining expert, creative director, stylist, storyteller, editor, and certified oversharer. Does that sound like an insanely long list of things to do? Well, it is, and that's exactly why we're here. Every week, I'm going to be sitting down with another multi-hyphenate whom I admire deeply to talk through their struggles, vulnerabilities, and eventual successes throughout their beautiful and winding journey to where they are now. Because it's in other stories, I believe, that we can always see just a little piece of ourselves. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming my friend and media maven, Christine Barbaric. Most people know her as the global editor-in-chief and co-founder of Refinery29, the award-winning media company that advocates for women and serves as a platform for voices of all walks of life. But Christine's impressive career is more complex than what meets the eye. In addition to sitting at the helm of a media company with a 300 million person footprint, she's also the New York Times bestseller author of Style Stalking, creator and host of the celebrated podcast Unstyled, mentor in residence at the Savannah College of Art and Design, and is a content creation consultant for women's-led companies like the lifestyle mezcal company Yola. Christine has served as a thought leader at universities such as SCAD and Parsons and spoken candidly on matters of new media, women's rights in the workplace, fertility, fashion in the digital space, sustainability and her love of vintage, and sharing her own personal success story. But Christine is a writer at heart. She cut her teeth in the publishing world before launching Refinery29, holding posts at Gourmet Magazine, The Daily, and The New Yorker. Her writing has appeared in New York Times Tea Magazine, Domino, Dwell, New York Magazine, Travel and Leisure, and she regularly contributes essays to her own publication. Christine is an incredibly big-hearted person who has created a space for a powerful generation of women who are passionate about advancing issues that have the power to transform society. Christine, I am so excited to have you on More Than One Thing today. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. I would love to kind of have you describe what being a multi-hyphenate means to you. Wow. I think for me, my interests and my skill set really overlap a lot. And it's very hard. It's always been really hard for me to choose. I just love participating in a lot of different kinds of challenges. And especially if somebody asks me, you know, to sort of sit down and talk through their business plan or their brand exploration. It's like, I'm always really excited to to help. And I think it's just, it's kind of responding to this sort of theme of storytelling. I'm just really drawn to, to products, people, opportunities, events, experiences, anything that have a really strong backbone of original storytelling. I think that's why I always wanted to be an editor and a writer. Yeah. 
I know that when we first met, when we cooked together for yeah. iSoon, I had no idea until we had spent the day together that you started writing at Gourmet about food. So has writing always kind of been just kind of the through line of speaking about and storytelling from anything from fashion to food? <laughs> I think so. I've always had the urge to write. And I think writing has always been an outlet for me, as I think it is for a lot of people who seek solace in writing and keeping journals. It's a safe place to express yourself and to express doubt and fears and hopes and dreams and all of those things. It's a way for me to just track my world and how I'm operating in my world and sort of holding myself accountable for things that I want to achieve or experience or overcome. And I think journal writing had led me to wanting to pursue a career that involved writing. And I think because a professional writing career is so challenging, it's so competitive. And it was when I started 20 something years ago, and it certainly is today. So editing was a really interesting career path where I could be in parallel with storytelling and learning how to be a great writer by helping other writers and training as an editor. And that was really the foundation for my experience at Gourmet. I was not allowed to write anything for Gourmet after I'd been there for at least two years. And even then I had to do a lot of begging to get them to trust me with a little food story that I did out in Phoenix, Arizona. And I think that that institution, it really was an institution. And obviously I miss the magazine very much because while I was 26 when I started there. And I don't think I could have fully appreciated the gravity of the work and the standard of excellence that they just imbued in everything that they did, not just the recipes and the entertaining stories, but the travel and their perspective on just the appreciation of food. And I just learned so much about it, even though I was incredibly intimidated being in test kitchens and mm. talking with the food editors and these brilliant, brilliant writers like Jane and Michael Stern, who I got to work with. But I learned a lot there. I really did. And it actually made me really take writing and editing and the, the path of getting a story to publication very seriously. I'm just so curious because you really were at the forefront of digital media far before anyone else. I really appreciate it. I think people forget sometimes that we were out there before anybody else. You, I mean, I'm so curious. Like, what was that like moving from print media, which obviously was still at the time still booming? I mean, maybe at a little bit of a decline, but not like it is now. But what made you kind of make that shift and did you struggle with moving from print to digital? I'm just curious, just because we talk a lot on this podcast about uncertainties and making choices, trusting your gut. And you really, I think, took an enormous risk. And obviously it paid off. But I'm just curious, what was that inkling of an idea? And if you can share how you really trusted your gut and moved forth or maybe were uncertain about certain things. I'm always uncertain about things, but <laughs> I also think that I know when there is an, an overwhelming feeling of opportunity and urgency that I need to do something that is a part of my destiny, whatever that is, as it's developing throughout my life. But I think even in 2004, when I met my co-founders and we decided to build this company and start the first chapter of what Refinery29 would become, Twitter wasn't around yet. So it gives you a glimpse into what the digital media world was like. It was the Huffington Post, it was Facebook, it was AOL, and, and Net-a-Porter. I really, Natalie Massenet, I really like 
you know, hats off to her because she was really out there before anybody else talking about people and consumers wanting to order clothes online. And I think it was really exciting because it was this new space, this whole new generation of opportunities to create something and to touch a bigger audience. You know, it didn't matter to me that it was digital. It's still your job to create a really meaningful connection with your audience, even if you can't touch them and you can't see them in person. And I think that digital was just a different approach to it. And I was terrified. I also felt really excited about the elasticity of it and that it could become anything. And I knew even at that very early stage that people would be reading on their phones, you know, that mobile devices were going to become a very important part of people's lives and helping people to acquire information and share information and, you know, just live more efficiently. So I knew that that was happening. But I think the important thing that I think probably a lot of your listeners can relate to, and I think that you can too, and I think it's at the root of your podcast about this multi-hyphenate is that I never liked anyone putting me in a box and I didn't like anyone telling me what I could and couldn't do. Mm. And I think it's why I'm incredibly grateful to a company like Condé Nast for giving me an opportunity. And, you know, I was an assistant at the New Yorker and I worked for almost five years at Gourmet Magazine and training there as an editor. And I was an assistant in another capacity in the company. But I think that it's companies that are very operationally restrictive that I think I just felt really uncomfortable. And I think it's why I've always been drawn to starting companies and working on a small scale, but making it big Mm. because I need that flexibility. I need to be able to test things. I need to be able to recruit people myself. I need to be able to ask questions. I need space and time to figure out what something is. And I think sometimes that's difficult in big established companies. And I get that there's a lot of fear because starting a company or joining a startup can be scary because there's no guarantees, but there are no guarantees in a big established company either. Mm -hmm. And I think you really have to listen to your heart. And I've always done that professionally and it's never led me astray, even when it's been scary. I've said this before too. I know that I'm 51 now And I can't even believe that I've actually, I'm 51, but I am. And I remember starting the company and my co-founders, Piera, Philip, and Justin were all 10 years younger than me. And I was really, really scared because I was in my early thirties and I was essentially signing on to be broke for a while for an unforeseen future. And I wasn't in a relationship. I didn't own an apartment. I had, I mean, you yourself at that time had a child, you know, was you were married, you were living in a beautiful home. And I think it was like looking at someone like you, your life, and then looking at what the choice I was facing. And I was like, oh my God, I'm literally going to blow up my whole life right now. And everyone thought I was nuts. And everyone thought that if I did this, I was really going to sideline myself from Mm -hmm. a life that I thought maybe I would want someday. What did you walk away from when you started Refinery? I didn't walk away from anything. I was freelancing at the time and taking interviews because I had also helped to launch City Magazine, which was a really, really important magazine and creative vehicle for me. It's where I originally met Piera. It was a design and fashion and architecture magazine, and I loved it so much. And that's where I really learned to be 
a creative and editorial leader. I left Gourmet to start that magazine with John McDonald, and I'll always be grateful to him for that, who's also a restaurateur. I love yeah, him so much. Me too. He's still a dear, dear friend of mine, and I loved working with him. He's just such a joy. And I think that what I was giving up was the sense of stability, the sense of financial security. I was paying my health insurance myself. And I remember being very, very nervous about how I was going to pay my rent without earning a salary. I was hustling. I worked seven days a week. I was freelancing wherever I could. I remember doing consistent writing. This is so funny. For custom publishing, the Four Seasons magazine, the hotel chain had this magazine. They probably still do. They literally sustained me. They're one of the publications that helped to literally fund my life while I was starting that company. So I just, you figure it out, you make it work. It's so scary though, but I think it's really, really worth it. You can't not do something because you're afraid. And I think when you sit down with pen and paper and you make a list of the pros and cons, I guarantee you, if it's the kind of thing where you're, you really believe that if you don't do it, you're going to regret it, you have to do it. You have to. And yeah. that's how I felt. I knew I was going to regret it if I didn't do it, even though I didn't know what it was going to be. What did you think it was going to be? Like, what were the verticals that you wanted to cover, which in and of itself has many hyphens, right? It didn't in the beginning. We started as, you know, tracking back to Natalie Massonet and Netta Porte. I think what we were excited about was, I don't know if you remember this, but in the early aughts, the Lower East Side and Nolita was a really interesting place for creatives. There were these happening in Los Angeles too and, and, and other cities around the country, but this independent retail boom was happening where these small stores were creating these beautiful environments that were very unique and very destination-like. And they were having parties and events and like, you know, remember Lyle and, and Mail and Cesarvant and just all these great places. And we felt like there was an opportunity to create these digital interactive platforms where we could collect all the best independent retail in Los Angeles and in New York and help them to connect with a bigger audience because they didn't have the resources to do that themselves. And that's the way it started. We took all of their inventory in. I mean, we were one of the first people to feature at the time opening ceremony. And Stephen Allen was a, was a big supporter in the very early days. And we brought I don't think that opening ceremony was on our map, but they were one of the stores and the kind of store that we were targeting. Like they were just doing everything differently mm -hmm. and experimenting a lot with collaborations. And so we actually got their inventory. We photographed it in our offices. We hosted the transactions on our site. It was very ahead of its time. And you could hover over the map and you could click on a store and you could actually, we photographed the store. You could actually have this sort of remote experience and then what we were doing was we had a newsletter and I was obviously overseeing the content and the storytelling with Piera Gilardi, who was my co-founder and creative director. And that's what really started to take off is that people were really gravitating to the content that we were writing. And in the beginning, I wrote most of the stories, but it was a really liberating place to be because I started to really feel how dated women's media felt because I was a woman coming of age. You know, Glamour Magazine was still putting bars over women's faces and telling them, you know, in their do's and don'ts section and 
making these very superficial judgments about things women were wearing and saying that they were don'ts. It was wrong. You know, I just remember thinking like, you know, it's always like when you see on the worst dress list, like those were always the people that I was the most interested in, you know? (laughs) And it's like, who's making these rules? It's like so stupid and feels so antiquated. So I think that there was this sense of inclusion and representation that was needing to be born, that was struggling to have a voice and a platform and a means of connecting with other like-minded people. And even if I wasn't fully aware of it at that point, we were starting to see the seeds of it. And that was what was really exciting. And that was what we sold, obviously, advertising and inventory against. And it was really about testing different facets of wellness, of, of beauty and identity and personal style, not just fashion and trends. And I think I was really excited about turning these traditional women's media categories upside down and figuring out, well, what do you really care about? Like, what is the stuff that really resonates with you or the things that you kind of read and you're like scratching your head? Like, I don't really, that doesn't make me feel good. That just makes me feel judged. And I feel like I can't relate to that at all. And I think that that was the kind of institution that we were challenging. And it felt really, really good because I think people felt seen And you were able to measure what people were responding to. Oh my goodness, yes. And and I have to say, people felt seen, but I think that they educated me. I have enormous gratitude to my audience and to the team and the incredible creative people that have come in and out of Refinery29 because there are so many of them that were critical sort of game changers in our infrastructure and helped us to keep propelling this brand forward. Because I've said this to people before, and I really believe it, that brands really take on a life of their own. They have a beating heart, they have a soul, they have a spirit, they have an energy. And it's like, it's really your job to just make sure it keeps moving in the right direction and just tending to it like a beautiful plant and just making sure that it stays alive and it has what it needs and it gets in front of the right people. But I think our audience, they're the real curators here. They're the ones that have helped us to make the right decisions and to help Refinery29 become what it needed to become. Yeah. As you were growing this brand, this business, this baby, can you share kind of how you needed to continually recalibrate and and maybe some of the struggles in growing and managing a team and building a business that was much of a disruptor? I mean, you, like I said earlier, you were one of the first. So I'm sure that there was a lot of hurdles that you had to navigate as you were growing this business. There were, but they never were hurdles that would prevent me or my co-founders from moving forward. And I think that you just want to continue to work with people that just get it. You're going through the interview process and there is just a natural chemistry and that you just feel like I need this person here with me. Like they're making me better at my job. Right. And I told this story on the Girl Boss podcast Mentor Memos with Neha Gandhi, who I had hired as our executive editor at Refinery. She was one of those people that was such an incredible partner to me on, you know, within our content world. And I'm so proud of her that she's the editor-in-chief and COO at Girlboss now, but she was one of those people, you know, it's a great example we talked about when we first met on her podcast. And I just knew when I read her cover letter, I was like, I need to meet her. I need to hire her today. I just, I knew that she got what it was we were trying to do. And that's just like any relationship. It's like you, you have to just fit yourself with the people that need to be here, that they have a destiny that they're sort of living out to. And the company just kind of like 
allows that to play out. And I think recruiting is everything in a company. I really believe in that theory, like hire slow, fire fast, you know, because you are really, especially in a startup environment, you're really bringing people on, you're, you're hoping and, and expecting are going to take on a lot of responsibility. And a lot of times they act as founders and take on the responsibilities of founders without always getting the benefits of founders. I think that that's a tremendous sacrifice that people make when they're helping to build companies. And I think I just have a lot of gratitude to the people that you know were there and, and loved it and just were really excited about what we could build together. Yeah. But I think that the hurdles are are terrifying and obviously they can be economic, they can be personal. I think that it was difficult, like I said, coming of age as a fully formed woman, adult. And I didn't meet my husband until I was 38. And I know that it doesn't matter, but I remember feeling like when you're still getting a company off the ground and all of your friends are getting married and having children and, you know, advancing in their lives in certain ways. And I was just like, what am I doing? Yeah. Yeah, I hope it all works out. And I'm like crossing my fingers. And I think that now having met so many people that have been through similar experiences, I just felt so much less alone. I had the exact opposite experience as you. I did not have career at all until 35 because I got married at 23 and I had a baby at 26. I was petrified and I was depressed. Even though I had this beautiful family and beautiful home, I knew I had so much to say and so much bursting inside of me, but I just had no platform. I didn't know what I was meant to kind of offer this world. I just felt trapped within my mind and home alone with a baby when all my friends and peers were out in the world. And I mean, yeah, it was really, really hard. But I think it's important that you share about that because it's very easy for us to look on Instagram and see you and see how beautiful you are and you have this amazing home and your husband's lovely and your your son's gorgeous and <laughs> everyone's smart and and nobody gets coronavirus in your house and it's just like it's easy to make those assumptions about people's lives but if we're all really awake in our lives it's like we're all dealing with so many similar things you know and just wanting this life to matter And not wanting to have regrets when we're 70 years old and feel like I played small. And it's just, what's the point, you know? I'd rather just like go down in a ball of flames. Is that the saying? Go down in a a ball (laughs) of flames? Is is it a ball of flames? I think so. I can't remember. I think it is. I don't know. I'd just rather go for it and just, you know. I'm proud of you though. You did it. You're doing it. And I think that that... That's what counts. That's what matters is that you're trying. I kept thinking that my whole life was a series of missteps, even though everything, not now, but like before I found success, whatever that meant, I just thought that like, oh, I did it all wrong. No. I like, I did it there is completely no backward. No, I know that now because, and also like being a young mom and basically being a housewife in my 20s, instead of being a career woman felt so antiquated, but in away, everything I'm doing now is a reflection of what I was doing then. Being isolated and at home actually led me to my love of the home and of cooking and entertaining. So, um, but I, I used to say that when I went out and about in the city, like that I was living in the city, but I wasn't using it because I was isolating at home. And when I did go out, I would I I used to feel as though I was hiding behind a glass wall. 
I never wanted anybody to look at me. I just like played played small because I didn't want somebody to say, what do you do? Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I felt the same way when people asked me if I was in a relationship and I was in my mid-30s and I was like, no. And they'd be like, oh, sorry. <laughs> it's too bad for you. You're such a loser. And oh, no, but we, but, no, but we put that pressure on ourselves and we feel less than because of how I think this sort of like conditioning in women over generations about how we value ourselves and how we see success and how society sees us as successful. And that's being a mother, being married to someone that has a great job yeah. and you can work too, then then it actually kind of stirs up all these other judgments. It's like, oh, it's like you never see your kid. Totally. Yeah. You well, should I be in prison. such guilt that I wanted more because I already had so much. There was guilt that I had this beautiful family and this beautiful husband. Like I'm so lucky. Just, how could I, how, how should I, I'm not allowed to ask for any more. I don't deserve any more, which yeah. is so wrong because I think when you want more and you ask for more and you start to create inroads for more, I think it creates more for the people around you too. It's like really eliminating the things in your life that make you feel like you have to dim your light. And that's people and that's environments and being around the people that make you feel like you can shine in the way that you need to shine, because that actually helps other people shine too. It doesn't help to be in a relationship where you feel like you have to be small. Yeah. And I've been in relationships where I felt that way. And it's so funny now looking back at it, it's like, I think I was just trying to be invisible. So I don't even know how I would imagine that that would be that kind of relationship could last because I was so... I was so not myself, but you can only see that in retrospect, I think. You can. Yeah. yeah, You can. So what was the moment that you just felt everything come together in your personal life or in your business or with Refinery29? Like, was there that one moment that was the catalyst where you really stepped away from this question mark, am I, and moved into I am? I don't know. I think I'm always going to be sort of a student, a professional student, because I think that's why I'm so grateful to the Savannah College of Art and Design. They invited me after speaking there a few times to be a mentor in residence. And I love that school so much. And Paula Wallace, who's the founder of that school, is just such a genius. I really look up to her. And Michael Fink, who's the dean of fashion, he just let me do so many fun, creative things there. And I think it's just, I'm always looking for opportunities to keep learning and to keep developing my voice and how I can be of service in the world. And I think also struggling for so many years to have a child was, was you know, in parallel with growing Refinery29 nearly broke me. But I also think that I have such an empathy towards parenting now and also the the sacrifices and the hard work and the time and the dedication and the resources that go into raising a family and working even just getting pregnant and working it's just women are incredible and we're um, super women really Can, would you mind sharing with the listeners how old you were when you had your baby i had my daughter when i was 49 and i I don't recommend it. (laughs) I think it's just the way it worked out for me and finally gotten matched up with a wonderful doctor. His name was Jeffrey Braverman. And unfortunately, six months after Rafi was born, he passed away really suddenly. And it was was really devastating to me. But he was my guy and he was the one who really believed that I could have a baby. And he helped also discover all these weird kind of things that were wrong with me that other doctors couldn't find. And 
he just helped me to create the conditions to have her and to really finally welcome her into the world and our family. And I've written a few essays on Refinery29 and for the most part, people are very supportive and positive, but it's really interesting to read the negative comments where people think that I was really irresponsible having a child so late and how I've put my daughter at risk and people kind of constantly reminding me about how old I'm going to be when my daughter's 20 and like, I can't do math or I didn't spend days and nights laboring over those kinds of questions. And I really just want everyone out there who may have ambivalent feelings about becoming a mother or is struggling with becoming a parent. It's that just keep talking to yourself and keep checking in with yourself about how important this is to you and whether or not it does feel like a necessary part of your path. Because I think when you have as many challenges as I did, I really questioned whether or not it was supposed to be part of my path. How long were you trying? For my first pregnancy and my first loss was at 41. And I had many that followed. Rafi was my eighth pregnancy. Oh my goodness. um, What a miracle. She is really a miracle and she's hilarious. And yeah, she was worth waiting for. But I think there are women that I've met and families that I've met that have had far greater loss and struggles and challenges and It's very expensive. And I obviously like over the course of 10 years, you know, scraped together the resources to keep going. And I had to stop at certain points and sort of recoup some of the expenses and try to save and move things around and do whatever we could to just sort of have the funding to just keep going because it is a very real part of like what makes this so hard. I wish healthcare was more affordable for everyone because this really should be a very central part of healthcare as well for women. But I think it was just trusting that when I finally got to the point when I met my doctor and and he said, you know, I I think we should try one more time. And and I just needed to try one more time. And that was Rafi. So, but everyone's journey is different and everyone has to, you know, sort of check in with their community and their, the people that they love to figure this out on, on their own terms. And I think that the people that are judgmental about my path to motherhood being different than others, it's like, you know, maybe just keep your comments to yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. I understand that they probably mean well, but it doesn't make you feel good, especially if it wasn't my choice to have a child at 49. It's just the way that it worked out. Yeah. I mean, it's not so dissimilar to people feeling defeated or shameful about wanting to be more than one thing or starting over a new career or, you know, at a certain point in your life, choosing to have a child much later. Like there is no shoulds. There are no shoulds. And I think if anyone reaches out to you and, and says, is this crazy? Is it crazy that I want to do this? It's like, no, if you feel that feeling that this is just something I need to experience and I need to explore good or bad, succeed or don't succeed. It's like, you cannot, at least I can't speak for everybody, but I just... I couldn't be that person to say, "Mm, I don't know about that. Yeah. I think if you need to explore it, you need to explore it. 1000%. Yeah. Wow. That's really inspiring. And I would love for you to share a little bit about how you have really fostered this beautiful community at Refinery, but also beyond through speaking engagements about advocating for women. And I know you're really passionate about it. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about what your mission is. Well, I think... Refinery is all about being able to amplify the voices of others. And I think we try to facilitate important conversations that need to be had, we feel, in in different aspects of women's lives. I'm the editor-in-chief of our brand, but 
I really allow everyone else to dictate, you know, where the conversations are going and who's hosting them. And there's a lot of aspects of our coverage that I'm not an expert in, but it's my job to really help create the openings so those conversations can start, even just in in light of what we were just talking about. No one was talking about infertility or fertility or miscarriages even. And I felt very, very alone and isolated in my experience. And I'm sure that you probably feel this way too. No one's talking about starting their careers over in their mid-30s, in their mid-40s, in their mid-50s. And I think that there is so much, we are so hard on ourselves. And I think what we try to do is just provide a community around these topics that haven't traditionally been talked about publicly so women can feel less alone and they can find the resources that they need so they can keep going in their lives and do and be everything that they want to be. It's interesting. I'm just, I'm really happy about the the sort of expansion and the dialogue around mental health now. And just, I think, watching Lady Gaga and Oprah recently and talking about how antidepressants really helped her. And I think that there is so much stigma and judgment around mental health. And I just think it's wonderful that people can talk about it more freely and, and with more openness and more acceptance. So people can just continue to, to figure out, you know, how they can operate, you know, in a, in a really joyful way in the world and feel productive without feeling scrutinized all the time. Yeah. And it was interesting talking, not talking, I was listening to the episode on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, the director of Joker. And I had no idea. I haven't seen the film, so I can't say for sure. I just make me uneasy in terms of just like the sort of violence of it or the the sort of, I don't know, it just seemed really scary to me. But It's the, beautiful. It is. But there is a really strong theme of sort of mental health in there and just about how people that suffer from mental illness have to do it on the inside. They can't wear it on the outside. Yeah. And I really, really loved the director talking about that. And I learned a lot from it. And I think that that's just what being in this job is about is just feeling like I can be constantly learning. So I can be, I can be there to extend our platform to the people that really need it and that the people that need to hear from them. So I think that that's an awesome responsibility and I don't always get it right, but I really try. So how do you navigate when you feel you don't get it right? I think it's just asking. I don't do anything in a vacuum anymore. I I very rarely make decisions without checking in with anybody. If I have a strong feeling about something that I want to do or, or not do, I'm very vocal about it. But I love the team that I work with. I'm very, very lucky that I'm surrounded by so many incredibly talented and diverse women. I'm just super grateful to our team and they're just I think we all complement each other and we're all kind of holding each other accountable for the things that we're best skilled at and that we're interested in. You're going to fail. I mean, you're going to make mistakes. And I think if you are doing anything wholeheartedly, you're going to fuck up. And I think it's, it's okay. And I think that unfortunately, social media can be an, an unforgiving place, but I think try and look at social media as a tool and it's a lens and occasionally it can be a very dark place, but you just have to keep going and not worry so much about being punished for making a mistake because you won't make mistakes. And I think you just have to kind of pick yourself up and keep going and just try to learn from it because that is a natural part of growing as a leader and as a visionary person in whatever field you're in. 1000%. I'm curious because you just shared about, you know, going out to your team and not making a decision on your own. I definitely like to make sure that I have their their way in. Yeah. Yeah. 
But for people that are multi-hyphenates, that feel perhaps a little overwhelmed about having varied interests and maybe don't have a community. Like we talk a lot about like the importance of mentors and about asking questions or learning from your peers. But what advice would you have for people that don't know how to make that first step or don't know who to bounce off of? Like, do you have any advice on how to kind of broaden your network? I mean, besides listening to people like you and I speaking about how, and that's why I wanted to start more than one thing. I really wanted people to hear how we all navigated, you know, the growth of our seemingly successful careers. But I'm trying to kind of give advice for people if they feel a little isolated in their creative endeavors of of what they can do to take that first step. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not afraid of DMing anybody on Instagram. And I DM I, people all the time. I I don't hear back from a lot of people, but <laughs> I actually feel that act of reaching out is a big, big step. And it's so surprising. Also, when people reach out to me, I respond to almost everybody that DMs me, even if it's just like with liking their comment or something. Yeah. And people freak out. They can't believe like, oh my God, you're listening. And it's like, yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's a very relatable and accessible place. And I think that the multi-hyphenate that you talk about is a very real thing because we are not people that kind of put ourselves in these kind of isolated roles. But I also think that sometimes, and and you tell me if you agree with this, because I think I was this person, is that I wasn't really sure which role was going to fit. And so I kind of took on a lot of roles. And then I think as I started to excel in my career and started to see what people were responding to in terms of the work I was doing, I was able to narrow my focus. Right. And I think that that's really the goal. I think that very few people can kind of juggle six different identities. I think you're always going to be putting your emphasis in like one, two, or three kind of areas of your life. And I think that that's okay. I think it's just trying to continually check in with yourself about where you're happiest. And I think that's the dream is to sort of have it not feel like work because it just feels like something that you're born to do and not something that you feel like you should be doing. And I know that that's a very tough call because I think a lot of people want to get to that place where they're doing what they love and that should be the goal. But I just think checking in with yourself and constantly, like when we're on social media, paying attention to the people's profiles that make you feel good and don't make you feel small. Because I had to start muting people that their social media was just making me crazy because I was just like, this isn't good for me because it's just making me feel like I'm not doing enough and I'm never going to catch up and I'm never going to be sort of what I think sometimes people think I should be. Yeah. You know, muting is a very powerful tool (laughs) (laughs) and it's okay if you need to do it for a while, but I think you just have to surround yourself with your people. Definitely. And, and I think the more confidence you have in who you are and the work that you're doing, the people show up. I mean, am I wrong? No, people do show up. They show up and it's like all of a sudden your community starts to take form. And it's like, as soon as you make that call, it's like the road rises to meet you. My professor in college, Robert O'Connor, who I love so much and I still admire him so much. And I remember in my early thirties when I was thinking I wasn't going to start a magazine with John, I was going to go back to grad school and I was going to write short fiction. I remember sending him all of my samples when I was applying for my MFA. And I just remember every single email to him was like wrought with just 
doubt and doubt and like, I'm going to amount to nothing. I am going to squander this life. I am awful. I am not talented. I'm never going to make it. And this is a person who was nominated for a Pulitzer. And I remember he just told me in an email, if you put yourself out there, the road will rise up to meet you. And I realized that's what I was doing. And I didn't go to grad school. I only got into one grad school at that time. <laughs> so sad. And wasn't um, meant to be. I know, but he was right. I needed to go through that exercise. It was part of the circuitous journey to getting to where I needed to be. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that. Beautiful. So I had a thought as we were sitting here talking. What is it? So what's that list that Forbes does, like 30 under 30 or something? Oh, yeah. Is it is it Forbes? Is it Forbes? I don't, I don't even know. know who it is. But I didn't like, make that list. I wasn't really on anybody's radar when I was under 30. Uh, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> is there like a 40 over 40 list or do we need to start it? I mean, maybe you should start it. I don't, I don't know if there is. I'll be on all the lists. The 50 <laughs> over 50, the 60 over 60. I mean, I'm there. Sign me up. Yeah, I'm there too. Uh, if I'm lucky enough to make that list, I mean. Oh, girl, you are on the list. Oh, I don't know about that, but thank you. This was really so inspiring and... I love talking to you. you. I know, me too. Well, thank you for this show. I think it really means a lot to people. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, Athena. If you're enjoying more than one thing, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. And please don't forget to rate and review us and keep spreading the love on social media. Feel free to tag and DM at iSwoon on Instagram. I'm Athena Calderon, and you are listening to More Than One Thing.